loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Kate Schatz. Kate is the New York Times bestselling author of Rad American Women A to Z, Rad Women Worldwide, Rad Girls Can, Rad American History A to Z, the illustrated journal My Rad Life, and the book of fiction Rid of Me. She's a writer, activist, public speaker, and educator who speaks often about feminism, anti-racism, parenting, politics, American history, and more. And she lives with her family on the island of Alameda, not too far from me, Kate. Welcome. Wow, thank you for having me, Cheryl. Absolutely. And I am so, so very um, honored to have you this particular day. It's Juneteenth, for one thing. It's, uh, we're in the middle of, um, oh, so many things. <laughs> a, re- a, re- a revolution? Uh, <laughs> one can hope. Um, <laughs> an upheaval, an uprising, so many different words. So many different words. And, and the, the word that's been coming to my mind is kind of intersection that, you know, with the pandemic just making glaringly obvious so many inequities and then, uh, you know, economic, racial, everything. And then um, George Floyd's death and other deaths and, you know, uh, the protests, of course. Um, There's just so much going on. There is. And isn't it interesting? It's like this moment where there's kind of nothing going on. Like our lives have all changed. All the things we normally would be doing have stopped. Uh, and then in its place is all of this other stuff. Well, and it's interesting, you know, this show obviously is about grief and transformation. Uh, that's that's my subject. Mm-hmm. And I was already uh, talking about this time just just at from the very beginning of, of sheltering in place as uh, a global grief event. Yes. Because all of our lives, as we knew them before, ended. Yes, absolutely. We all lost our lives, you know, whatever they looked like. And regardless of whether we were actually sheltering or having to be out in the world working, whatever it was, everything was radically different from one day to the next almost. Mm -hmm. So um, when I went to follow you on Instagram, uh, after we, um, you know, after I heard about you, I laughed out loud because your uh, description said um, W. Kamau Bell may have sent you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> because I've, I've um, admired him for a long time, followed him. And so uh, when I, when it popped up in my feed, his interview with Conan O'Brien, I'm like, well, that's going to be potentially interesting. (laughs) And then it truly, truly was. So maybe you can um, say the story from your point of view and um, 
And kind of did you expect a lot of people to come your way after that interview? Sure, sure. So yeah, Kamau is a wonderful comedian. He's an incredible activist and parent and, and just a really good friend of mine. And, you know, I think about a week into the massive wave of demonstrations and protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder, Kamau emailed me and said, hey, uh, I've got all of these white people who are in positions of power with a lot of money. And he said, he said, not, they're not just everyday white people. These are like big time Hollywood white people. And he said, they're all reaching out to me and they're all saying, what can I do? What do I do right now? And and it was a short email. And he said, can you help me? Can we have a phone call? Can I just send them your way? I don't know what to do with them. And, uh, you know, and I wrote back, you know, and come out. I mean, he's a comedian. We're always kind of joking around. I wrote back and I said, come out, send them my way. Like, you do not need to deal with this. I will, I will handle those white people. Send them my way, but let's talk. And then I didn't hear from him for maybe a day or two. And I get a text from him and he says, I'm going on Conan O'Brien in 20 minutes. Can you talk? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah. So I pulled over actually in downtown Oakland. I was actually with my seven-year-old son looking at some of the beautiful murals that had- Oh, amazing. Yeah. The, you know, it was so interesting, uh, not to get too off topic, but it's all related these days. But oh, I, no, that's not off topic a bit. Yeah. I just did the same thing. Yeah. So, you know, right after, after the initial kind of, um, you know, protests in downtown Oakland, you know, I went down and all the windows were broken and it was just- just looked like a war zone. And then right immediately, people started putting up new plywood and graffiti artists came out and did tributes to people. And, and it was beautiful. And so I, I was showing my son. And anyway, that's when I called Kamau and he says, I'm about to go on Conan. And uh, so I did not expect the first white person uh, that he was going to send my way to be Conan O'Brien. But uh, <laughs> you knew it would be Somebody though, <laughs> somebody. But it's a great. I mean, every everybody should watch. I think Kamau and Conan have an incredible conversation. And then, kind of as a you know, you know, kind of as a in a facetious way, Kamau says, "Conan, I've got a friend for you to help you understand your whiteness." You know, Kate's in charge. Uh, send send people. Uh, send you know, go her way. And then um, I was actually at a Black Lives Matter demonstration here in Alameda and looked at my phone and realized that Conan's team had tweeted about it and put all my info out. And I was like, oh, okay. This is for real now, huh? I might get get some response. (laughs) And, you know, it's one of these moments where you never know what something will turn into. Um, I feel very ready in the moment to have these conversations. And and I think that's why, you know, I I keep kind of saying as I interact with people, I am not an expert. Um, You know, I don't really know who's an expert these days on anything really, but I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm someone who is interested in this stuff. I've been open to talking about race and whiteness and white supremacy for a long time. Um, I'm not a trained facilitator, but I love having these conversations and, and I want to encourage more white people in particular to, to be understanding, understanding their history, understanding our position, understanding what whiteness is and how it functions in the world. So um, I was uh, happy to have all these people kind of come my way. And I'm, and I'm also happy to report that I've had some really really good communication with with Conan O'Brien himself he is really uh he's really thinking about this and it's a really interesting moment to be talking to kind of celebrities who are actually really starting to wake up and realize uh what systemic racism and history looks like and how 
you know, so many things about that. Actually, pretty short interviews stood out. But uh, one thing that, and because they're both comedians, of course, it was also just their inter- interaction was so wonderful. But, um, you know, uh, Kamau said, I am paid to answer this question, but don't ask other people who aren't. I thought that was great because it had been bothering me because I've been watching so many things that all the white interviewers were saying, what can we do? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is so exhausting. It's so exhausting. Uh, <laughs> so exhausting. One of my things I've been saying, I keep saying, you know, black people should be getting paid to respond to emails from corporations. <laughs> For sure. Well, here's a little personal example of that. Um, I mentioned bef- before we went on air that my daughter works at a big, I won't name the the company, <laughs> just mm-hmm. for her privacy, uh, a big um, film company. And she's been in the Office of Inclusion. So she's been talking since she's been there, which is now several years, about she's African-American identified. And she... Um, has been talking about in, um, inequity and, uh, you know, things like charging a lot of money for an event that's about diversity and, you know, just all these different layers and a little bit deaf ears. Yeah. Uh, but then if something went, if something happened, they'd come to her and say, what should we do? This has been going on for years. And so, um George Floyd was murdered. The protests started. Now everyone is kind of almost like waking up in a way. But again, coming to her and saying, what should we do? (laughs) And I'm like, you know, it's the age of Google. Can't we all just like figure it out? It's it's true. It's it's something that, I mean, this is where I really feel that white people, especially in, in, professional and business settings have an absolute obligation right now to be the ones talking about this. Um, and by that, I don't mean, I don't mean centering themselves. I don't mean leading the charge without consulting with, uh, with, with people of color in your workplace. You know, I don't mean just taking over, but I mean, being the ones to, to, to speak up and take risks um, and to, and to figure it out. I, and every time I hear stories like that, and I'm hearing them constantly um, from, you know, from black friends who are getting asked by their, you know, their higher ups, their bosses, what to do. I think it doesn't every workplace right now isn't like, you know, problem solving one of the core tenets that you want your employees to have. Aren't those the skill set you want your employees to have? Like, don't you want them to be figuring things out and solving problems and coming up with innovative solutions? So this idea that everybody's just turning to their coworkers of color and saying, what do I do is, um, it's really, really infuriating. (laughs) Yes. And, um, you know, I, I feel very fortunate. I grew up in, um, you know, a household where my dad was a civil rights worker. He walked the Pettus Bridge. You know, I have had experiences that a lot of people haven't had, and I feel grateful for that. So I always am mindful that, like, sometimes I'm a little ahead. Yeah. But I was also raised as a very wasp person to be afraid of doing it wrong. Yes. You know, that's kind of a of a huge um, factor, at least in my family and many other families I've encountered. What's the right way to do something? And and I should never, ever do it wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I feel that's really um, relevant in this. 
we we've got to do it wrong. Yes, that is. I mean, I I'm pretty well educated, and I do it wrong all the time with my family and my friends and etc. And so do I. And I think that's to me. I mean, there's so many different things going on right now. There's so many ways we can approach this, but that to me is one of the core messages that I at least try to get across in my work and my conversations. Um, we have to get out of our own way so that we can show up. Um, you know, it's it's the the head spinning, the paralysis of um, what do I do? I don't want to get it wrong. I'm afraid to say the wrong thing. What if what if what if I get you know? What if someone calls me out? All of these things really mm-hmm. hold a lot of very genuinely, and I'm always careful with the phrase "well intentioned," right? Because it's not about intention; it's about action. <laughs> it's about, uh, but it's what blocks the the well the good intentions from ever turning into action, um, because people mm-hmm. get really frozen in in fear, and that's you just have to get out of your way and 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 show up. And just to connect that with what happens with grief. I mean, I can't remember a person I've interviewed in who's gone through profound, profound grief, who hasn't been deeply hurt by what people didn't say, mm-hmm. and less hurt by people who said the wrong thing. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, people who said, kind of, um, you should this or that or the other. Yeah, that hurts. But someone close who then says nothing when your so your wife, your mother, your child dies? Yeah. Uh, it's profoundly mm-hmm. ripping, mm-hmm. and I keep I keep feeling that in this time. Say something. Yeah. Say yeah. I don't know what to say, but I'm going to figure it out. Say you know whatever it might be. I care about this. This is hurting. Yes. You know what. And that's actually like a piece of advice I do give people is acknowledge, I mean, if you're, if you're concerned about what to say, whether it's a public statement or a social media post or a message to your employers or a text to your friend, acknowledging that it's hard for you and you're worried about saying the wrong thing or that you, you're not sure how to do this, but you're doing it anyway, I think is a good idea. You know, I mean, it, that, that allowing yourself to be vulnerable and saying, look, I, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I'm thinking of you and I know this must be hard for you or, you know, to employees like, hey, I'm learning how to talk about this too. It's not easy for me, but we need to take a stand. You know, I think that that if you couching your statement in a vulnerable kind of honest, um, you know, way, I think can maybe help people with that process of being so worried about saying the, the wrong thing because there is no exact right thing to say. There's no one right way to be or act right now. Uh, it's so from, beyond. <laughs> it, is, it is. And, you know, I mean, really aside from being totally silent and doing nothing, there's no, there's no wrong way. And there are some ways that have personally hit me better than others in the sense that uh, here's what I'm talking about. As you probably have, I've gotten an email from everything I'm subscribed to. Right, everything, <laughs> you know, which is a ton of emails. Right, You're but like, um, mattress company where you bought the mattress. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the baby you- naming website, you know, yeah. that posted, uh, uh, which I which touched me. You know, all the names of people who've been um, killed. Um, all these people were somebody's baby, you know, I mean, all kinds of things. But the ones that have really uh, impacted me are ones that involved some kind of inventory. Yes. 
that uh, that said within this period of time, we're going to take corrective action. Yes, absolutely. The ones that were self-reflective really touched touched a nerve in me. Now, whether those things will actually come about and all, you know, that's a different question, but the idea of looking at ourselves, mm-hmm. what is what seems to be pushing me forward. Right. I agree. And, you know, and I think again, this all ties into, to, to grief. And I think that for, for white folks who are willing to do that work of, of doing that internal examination and of, opening themselves up to the histories that they haven't been taught, the things that they'd never thought about, the realizations they'd never had, what they'd never noticed. I think there's a lot of grief and sadness that comes with that. I think that's a big part of what, um, you know, again, holds people back is, um, you know, I think that when you really accept uh, the, the realities of, of what it means to be born white in this country, what how white supremacy functions, there's it is, it's a loss, you know, and especially if you want to move past that into action, into actually active anti-racist work and, and action and thought, um, you know, there is, there is a a loss of, um, you know, of innocence (laughs) of what you thought was true. um, And, you know, ideally a giving up of, of, of some of your, your power and your privilege. Absolutely. And there's also, uh, I observe a lot, a sense of overwhelm, a paralysis of overwhelm. Yes. And I really want to talk about that when we get back, because uh, I remember experiencing that yes. <laughs> earlier in my life. And there are ways past that. So I, I want to hear your thoughts about ways past that and maybe talk about that some. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to follow me every which way. And to find Kate Schatz, go to radamericanhistory.com. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com com slash good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. We're on Alexa smart speakers and connected devices. Hey Alexa, play being here podcast on Apple podcast. Try it now. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health. 
can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere. Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, The Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Kate Schatz, the author of Rad American History A to Z, and before the break, Kate, we were talking, we we're just beginning to talk about overwhelm, Yes. Um, which, you know, I'm hearing from uh, a lot of people, people of color in my life, um, you know, well, we'll see what happens because there are these moments where everyone turns out and then um, they kind of lose their steam, right? <laughs> but we are still living in it. And um that's angering, but it's also something that's familiar to me from dealing with people psychologically that often when people get overwhelmed, they shut down. Yes. And um, I'm hoping you and I can talk about some ways through that so that we kind of, those of us who don't get reminded every minute, uh, aka white people, um, (laughs) how do we kind of navigate out of overwhelm into recognition, action, living awake. Yeah, I, I think about this a lot and try to talk about it a lot because I think it's so important. Um, you know, yeah, overwhelm, the world is so overwhelming. I mean, it's, this has always been overwhelming. This uh, racial injustice and these histories of, and, and these present moments have always been overwhelming. Pile that on top of this unprecedented global pandemic that we've been going through. I mean, it is so much. And uh, I think what I try to suggest to people who are having those conversations and asking, how do I sustain this work? I don't want to just forget about it. I want to be involved. Um, I think, you know, there's to look to the long term. I think one of the best things people can do if they are feeling overwhelmed and just kind of waking up to this um, is to to start where you're at, you know, kind of meet yourself where you're at. What you know, because the, the truth is racial injustice and police brutality uh, these systemic inequities, they intersect with every aspects of our life, every community, every line of work, every aspect of our life is impacted somehow. And so I think for what I keep encouraging people to do, in addition to in this moment, yes, pay attention to what's happening nationally, you know, and, and be engaged and show up to demonstrations, but also look to your own community and, and your own life, your own line of work, and how can you be impactful in those spaces on an ongoing basis, you know, and Mm -hmm. so that some examples of that, I think one thing we're seeing right now is the power of local politics and local elections. 
you know, looking at Minneapolis, where it was the city council who made this enormous decision around defunding and, and, and realigning their police department. Um, and we're seeing mayors of small towns, you know, getting, resigning for, you know, not standing up. Um, you know, we're seeing locally elected officials having a really significant role, especially when it comes to policing uh, and to budgets. So I think that, you oh, know, yes. if you're a parent looking and if you have children in public schools, this is a, you know, and, and you want to be involved, the fight for funding in public schools, diverting funds from from poli- police into community services, into public schools, like that is a significant um, place to go into. You know, I mean, the PTA can be activism as far as I'm concerned. So absolutely. You know, so I think for some people and I, you know, I was consulting with some small business owners yesterday who um, are in the coffee business, you know, and just talking about that, you know, I mean, you you know, even the food world is, is connected to inequities and who's picking the food and who's harvesting the food and who's who's getting paid what and where's where's it all coming from. I mean, that can also feel overwhelming to get into, but (laughs) but. It, again, it's about where where you actually are, where are you living, and what's going on in your community, um, and figuring out if you're new to this work, who's already in your community doing it, and mm. how can you show up to support them, right? And that's another thing about overwhelm um, is you are not you're not going to solve this on your own, right? Uh, and I guarantee that whatever it is you are suddenly feeling very enraged about, or wanting to make a difference, or be impactful in there are people who've already been working on this for a long time. And so we do not have to, and I do think I, I, I will, I do think this is something that happens with whiteness um, as we center ourselves and think that we're the ones to solve the problem um, mm. and have the solution and know the answer. Uh, part of getting out of our own way is realizing that there's other people doing this work. How do we show up and support them? Um, so we don't have to do it all alone. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I'm thinking about um, when the election happened in 2016. Um, I don't need to go into details on that, but <laughs> I went into sort of a depression for a bit. And um, but because of the work that I do, I started thinking, OK, what am I going to need during this period to sustain myself? first of all. Uh, And I came up with four things. I was going to have to feel bad sometimes, you know, grieve sometimes. I was going to have to find solace and comfort somewhere. Mm -hmm. I was going to have to find inspiration. And I was going to have to take action. Mm -hmm. But all of those things are very unique to each individual person. So what I what I notice happens a lot is, oh, my God, this is a big problem. Uh, What do I do? And then we look around for actions. But to me, uh, the action has to come from inside and be something that is sustainable to us as individual humans. Yes. And and something that touches us, like, for instance, for me, uh, when I found out about you. I really hoped I could have you on the show, right? <laughs> that's that's an action that came up from inside of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's my little part to play, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so how do we get to our part to play? Because if we just think about the literally millions of things one could do, I think it's very dispiriting. I I agree. And I, and I think that it, it really, I, I always say that, 
activism and and you know the 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 fight for social justice and activism happens on a spectrum and and where you fit into that spectrum is incredibly personal and and totally based on who you are what your personality is what your circumstances are what your capacity is right so not everybody is built to be out in the streets putting their lives on the line um you know not everybody is able to go shut down the bay bridge and be arrested that's not available for everyone for all kinds of reasons. And there are a lot of quiet um, ways that people can make a difference that can be engaged. And I, and I really do think it really starts with being willing to talk about it. And I don't think we can underestimate the power and importance of what it looks like for people who have not previously been speaking up to do so in their private lives. Um, and I think that there's there's definitely public work that people can do, you know, putting up a Black Lives Matter sign in your front yard or wearing a T-shirt. I mean, I've always been like a big political T-shirt wearer and <laughs> everything. And I, I really I drive my car around with a Black Lives Matter sign in the window. And that, that is like a big part of what I do is making that visible. But there's a lot of work that can be done privately in those conversations with family, with, with neighbors, with community members, um, you know, with children. And that, that's really meaningful. And it, and it has an impact that I think really ripples out. It brings up a, um, a, a kind of experience to the side that I was thinking about before we went on the air, and I'll just try to do it fast. I'm in the Oakland Interfaith Gospel Choir. Uh, an ex- extremely, incredibly diverse in every way community of people. We obviously aren't singing at the moment, right. but we're doing other stuff. <laughs> if if it, people are watching this uh, live tomorrow, for instance, I'm doing a resiliency training for them, cool. uh, f- and it's open to the to the public. Um, so go to oigc.org if you're interested in that. Uh, it's free and etc. But um, so I've been in the choir about 12 years, 13 years, and um, I'm a lesbian. So what was happening from the very beginning is um, other lesbians would say, would come to me and say, I'm leaving the choir because I have to wear a dress. That's just not comfortable for me. I've tried to get past it. They'd leave. Uh, <laughs> I happen to be comfortable in dresses, so not an issue. So I started just whispering in ears about it. Um, and it was, it was dicey because there were really good reasons why we were dressing the way we were Mm. as a diverse gospel choir, uh, going into churches, black churches, some churches, we needed to be dressed like that. (laughs) I won't go into those things. I, I truly believe that was the truth. And yet there was this other place in which, um, our message of inclusion wasn't being met, right? Mm -hmm. But I just kept talking to people about my personal response to that, my sadness. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I don't know, five years ago, it evolved, it changed. Uh, And it changed because one person in our community choir absolutely could not uh, make that shift to wearing a dress and they let her wear a tuxedo in the community choir. Mm. And then, um, actually I think they go by they, so pardon me for that, 
forgiveness, <laughs> a mistake. There you go. <laughs> and um, then they joined the, uh, the, you know, like audition choir mm-hmm. and it wasn't changed. They weren't required. And now it's completely open. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's a, an example in uh I don't ever compare those two oppressions. They are not the same, but um, it's an example of how if you kind of stay in with people and keep talking, if you're able to, over time, people shift. Or my parents who were horrified when I came out, but eventually were advocates. You know, people do, are capable of growth, right? I do. Yeah, people are. Absolutely. (laughs) And so that... That matters, you know, because God, if we're stuck with where we are now. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's, you know, I, I am seeing that a lot right now in the conversations I'm having, um, mostly with white people. And, and I think that there's this particular moment that we're in, we kind of touched on it earlier that, you know, for people of color who, you know, you know, there's a lot of folks right now who are looking around at all these white people who are suddenly getting it and they it's exhausting and and there is a distrust of like okay cool see you in a few months like right right, right. and 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 so, and there's a lot of a lot of times there's anger there's resentment and there's distrust and i the the fragility of so many white people who are just again afraid to say the wrong thing and then also immediately just distraught if they feel like they're not immediately welcomed by uh, by a person of color or or they get a, a negative response um and so that's so um that anger and distrust is so deeply rooted and so legitimate. And I do feel like, but I also do feel like people are capable of change and understanding. And I guess I feel like that's one role I can play. And one way I can kind of leverage my privilege and position right now is I do feel available to talk to those people who are just now getting it, you know, um, my, you know, I, I feel like I'm willing to do that work of, of welcoming in people who maybe have questions that could seem naive or that they've been afraid to ask because they don't want to offend somebody, but they're genuinely wondering um, what to do, what to say, what phrase to use, what things, mm. you know, um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm willing to be a clearing house. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have a, um, an intimate support group of people to <laughs> help you keep your spirit uh, solid, right? <laughs> I, do. I do. I do. I do. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that's important too, you know, uh, this aspect of like keeping ourselves well so we can keep doing it uh, has yeah. really been on my mind. It's, it's really important, you know, and I, um, I, my girlfriend actually has been, she's been having a kind of interesting parallel experience in her workplace where she's um, had not really been out uh, in her, in her workplace. um, And then more recently has been, and has been kind of the one to be speaking up about a lot of things. And now um, whether it's, you know, racial justice, but also, uh, you know, sharing links to kind of pride events um, and, and asking people to identify their pronouns and their, you know, their email signature and just starting those conversations in, in her teams. And she's 
now getting all of these people kind of back channeling, reaching out to her and saying, you know, thank you so much for being the one to say this. And can I talk to you about this thing that's been happening? So by, you know, by putting herself out there, she's got people coming to her. So we are very supportive of each other in this particular moment um, and can really see the the work that each other are doing. Do do as much as you're ready for as soon as you can. Is that the takeaway? I was saying to someone yesterday, the other phrase is, you know, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. <laughs> and you can't do it all at once. <laughs> um, so when we come back, I really want to talk, I, of course, this, this conversation we've been having was just front and center for me. So thank you so much for having it with me. But I also want to talk about your book. So let's reserve the last third for talking about your book, which of course is not a separate subject, but is a a particular um, powerful voice that you've, that you've put out there that I really appreciate. So let's come back and talk about that. That sounds great. Listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com. That's my my website or the Good Grief host page that's got links to everything. And to find Kate Schatz, go to kateschatz.com. That's K-A-T-E-S-C-H-A-T-Z.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're on Alexa smart speakers and connected devices. Hey, Alexa, play Being Here podcast on Apple Podcasts. Try it now. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere, Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere, The Simpson Protocol, airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Kate Schatz, activist and author of Rad American History A to Z, and Kate, I want to really thank you for that book. Um, it was uh, it was so inspiring. Speaking of my third quadrant there, 
uh, just getting more, many of the things in the book I knew about, but they were written about so beautifully and I didn't know all of them. It was very inspiring that people have been taking action about inequity and injustice forever. And, uh, you know, that um, I, I just, I, it lightened my spirit so much, except for one aspect. I, I was like, oh my God, I am so old because <laughs> because a ton of the things in your book that are of the current era mm-hmm. um i experienced right and um some of them very directly like i was an a, an attendant in the um federal occupation uh of disabled people in the federal building Wow. Uh, you know, just things like it brought up so many memories. Sure. And then I'm like, I'm history. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a very weird feeling. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's, I mean, that's very intentional with the book. You know, I, I'm always really uh, interested in reminding people that history is not just stuff that happened a really long time ago to dead white people. <laughs> you know, that, that there's, <laughs> You know, our current moment, we are, and I I keep saying this to my kids, actually, we are, this is, we are living in history. This moment that we're in right now, this pandemic, this uprising, this is a, the thing that will be in history books. Um, So I very intentionally included recent histories alongside, uh, you know, 19th and 18th century histories. So you're not old, you are just someone who's lived through some remarkable moments. (laughs) Well, I don't mind the word old entirely. Uh, you know, we're such an ageist culture too. And so there's a way I've been kind of a little bit putting my middle middle finger up when I say old. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I'm uh, young at heart doesn't mean young in body. No, it does not. <laughs> it means more wisdom too. Oh, thank you very much. That that doesn't get said that often, but it's something I agree with. So, you know, back to what we said. We were talking about the last, um, the last segment. Um, to me, most of the things in that book involved some one or several people feeling called to do something. Yes. Uh, There's a sense of, because they couldn't have kept doing it if they hadn't felt called to do it. Yes. And um, that just seems like such a powerful thing to connect to in this time. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, the book, again, so Rod American History, it's a eight, we structured it, and I say we, I want to be clear that I, I do these books with Miriam Kleinstahl, who's been, is the illustrator and my collaborator. And amazing so, illustrations. Amazing illustrations. And mm-hmm. our idea with this book was, you know, it's an A to Z book. We use the alphabet structure, um, and each letter of the alphabet tells a different story of a movement or moment from American history that shows the power of of collective um, work and kind of radical change. And I really wanted to show this diverse range of histories, um, some that people will be familiar with, um, and some that I had never heard of when I began the research for the book. Um, The previous books that Miriam and I did, like Rad American Women A to Z, all focused on stories of individual women. Um, Some of them were pairs, like sisters or or duos, but mostly it was about individuals um, and short biographies. 
So with this book, we really wanted to show, like you just said, people who work together, who answered a call, um, who weren't just doing it alone. Because I think that one of the, there are so many ways in which we uh, mislearn history. (laughs) Um, Mm. And and one of those is the way that we tend to hold up one single individual um, who who then stands in for an entire movement. Now, that's part just out of that's kind of an expedient way to, to learn. It's, um, you know, so we have MLK represents civil rights and many people just don't even get past that. But, you know, the reality is that was a movement of hundreds of thousands of people over many, many years. Um, you know, so we wanted to, to shine a little light on that and yeah, bring up all of these histories that are incredibly relevant to this current moment. It's, uh, uh, it's interesting you bring up MLK and, and that, um, spot he sort of holds um, because I was looking for the quote before we went on air, but I couldn't find it. But it was something like uh, "injustice doesn't change until the until um, it matters to the people who are not directly affected by it." Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, that's a movement mentality that we all need to be in it together, and we mm-hmm. kind of need to be working together. Yeah, and then uh, next to that, I heard uh, an, a panel discussion with um, Patricia Cullors, one of the women who coined Black Lives Matter, and the interviewer was saying, um, "But there's no leader. We can't find the leader to talk to." Meanwhile, he had a panel of like six, yeah. <laughs> you know, amazing people. But um, she said, "Well, you know, leaders can be picked off." Yeah, that's that's exactly. uh, this is a collective movement. And I thought that was so I've thought of that so many times because all my heroes were, in fact, killed. Yeah. Uh, when I was young. Yeah, that's and, and, and that that's such a fallacy, right? There are actually tons and tons of leaders. And, uh, <laughs> exactly. And she said she also said we're all leaders. Yeah. Talk yeah. to any of us. <laughs> You know, and that's the truth. I mean, that is what that is part of what the '60s taught, showed us, right? Is what happens to the people who do get into leadership positions. They they get killed. Um, so I, I I agree with her. And she's B is for Black Lives Matter in this book. So it is the story of Patrice Cullors and Opal Tometi and Alicia Garza who who started and founded and coined Black Lives Matter. And actually, when I interviewed Alicia for this book actually one of the biggest things um, that she talked about and and it was really important to me in telling that story that I have her read what I wrote I wanted to tell the story in a way that felt right to to her um, and to Patrice and Opal and one of the biggest things that she wanted me to convey in the story was that they didn't make this up they didn't come up you know she's and you know that they are part of a long um, they, they started an organization, but they are part of a long trajectory of organizing for change. And they are in ancestral lineage with, with all kinds of activists over, over the centuries. So this is not just, you know, and they're not in charge. They're not the bosses. It is intentionally decentralized um, in a way that I think is showing, um, you know, showing great efficacy. They want to they empower leaders in all communities, not just have one person that everybody looks to. And then on the flip side of that, just to, this is kind of a parenthesis, but it, it I feel called to say it that what the media did was um, find some men, yes, <laughs> who got got on, you know, got involved actually later than the three of them, mm-hmm. 
and then um, saw them as the leaders, which uh, was so confusing to me when it happened, but not also. Um, so it's this paradox of um, individual people who do remarkable things being honored. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that's important, yes. but also not to be seen as some separate kind of human. Yes, uh, it is. It's all paradoxical, you know, and, and again, I, I think it's really important to single out particular figures. Um, but, you know, as, as we know, women get, you know, women and their contributions to history get, get ignored and overwritten and, um, you know, uh, deleted constantly. So that is a big part of my work is bringing, uh, bringing those stories to light. And it was very evident in this book, even though it is not uh, specifically about women, I'll have to go read your other books mm-hmm. and wait maybe a couple of years for my one and a half year old granddaughter. Of course, I could send it to my grandsons too, the kids book you did. They're, they're, <laughs> they're, for, they're for people and children of all ages and all genders. They love those books anyway, so I'll have to send it. Um, anyway, uh, you know, that... I felt it integrated that consciousness you have around uh, remarkable women, <laughs> but into a context of of kind of movement histories. Yeah, and, and I appreciated that. As my six year old son has said many times, there are men in this book. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny, <laughs> and I think that's you know it's, it's another thing I do talk about in in my work is that. Um, you know, when we learn American history, I mean, not only are women written out of those histories, but, uh, you know, the men who were on the right side of history who were fighting for justice are written out as well. You know, there's a lot of, you know, so that's, those are the men that I do center in this book. So I write about Colin Kaepernick, I write about Fred Korematsu, um, you know, I write about um, the, you know, Larry Ichilong, one of the Filipino farm workers who worked with Cesar Chavez. So there are a lot of men who have been doing incredible things who we don't learn about, you know, we, we learn about white men in positions of power and privilege and presidents and war heroes. Uh, but there's, there's lots of men out there that we could be learning about. And lots of movements that yeah. are still relevant. I mean, it can go two ways with that. I've, I've talked with many people in my, in my therapy practice about discouragement in the last few months uh, oh God, we still, <laughs> still, you know, <laughs> but flip side encouragement that um, so many people have done such remarkable things it's to true. try to improve uh, being human. And I think that when it comes you know, back to the topic of overwhelm, um, for me, the research that I do and, and the writing that I do is actually one of the biggest motivators for me that helps me get past that feeling of overwhelm or discouragement because I am armed with knowledge of so many stories of people who, who had, whose circumstances were so much more adverse than anything I'm facing, uh, who persisted in, you know, in conditions that were, you know, unimaginable to me uh, and, and really did incredible work. So, you know, I, I think to me, that's part of the power of understanding our history is it always gives us context for the present moment and a, and a sense of what we maybe need to do differently <laughs> or, you know, give us, give us a map to learn from, but it also, you know, puts our overwhelm and our anxiety and fear into context. Like if, if they could do it, then I can absolutely do it now. And then, you know, back to the, how we keep us, ourselves uh, 
personally active, it feels to me like you have a way to find your actions. Uh, I mean, I am not good. Let's say I'm great at research if I was patient enough. (laughs) I'm not too good at it because I'm not patient enough in that way. Very patient in other ways. But the the research that must have gone into that book to decide what to include and not to include and to really know about it deeply and all of that that's an incredible action that you bring to informing informing us yeah it was a so much research it was amazing <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine oh um, my god <laughs> it and and i didn't and you know like the people in the book who work collectively with others. I did not do it alone. Um, I mean, I, I, I wrote the book myself, but I, <laughs> I consulted um, with uh, scholars and activists and history teachers and students. Um, I interviewed people, multiple people for every story in the book. I had outside readers um, weighing in. Um, again, I, I often describe myself as a professional amateur historian because <laughs> um, I am not, I'm not a trained historian. This is not, you know, I am just fascinated with it. So I, as much as I could reached out to people who either have studied these histories or it, to the degree that I could people who were there and who lived them. And that was a really core part of my research was when I was writing about the more recent histories, I was really intentional about talking to people who were actually there and can tell the stories because those are the voices that history books tend to actually not include. <laughs> For sure. And also it, I, I think what you just said does contribute to the tone of the book, which um, is very, very narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that kind of history where someone is talking about it as an interested party, you know, <laughs> as, yeah. as someone who's moved by the story, because not all history is is written that way, for sure. But history is just stories, you know, and that's the thing that I that's what I try to do in the book. It's good storytelling is good storytelling. And, and, and history and nonfiction are presented so often, especially to young people from a very early age. It's presented as dry, factual it's a history book. It's a heavy textbook that you have to lug around in your backpack. Things and to be memorized. Dates to be memorized. Uh. Be memorized and <laughs> be tested on. And the and and when we can we when we make it fun, when we make it engaging, when we bring um, you know like strong storytelling elements into it, it's you no. Know, and I say this to kids a lot when I go and talk. I'm like, look, these are just cool stories. These are cool <laughs> that stories. is such a great place to end for the day. I've I've really enjoyed the conversation, Kate. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for the work that you do. Oh, thank you. And please, people, go to radamericanhistory.com to find out more. Next week, I'll have Lila Glasso Francesi to talk about her book, The Situation, A Radical Journey Through Sisterhood. It describes her sister's diagnosis of glioblastoma and what happened in their relationship as they navigated her illness together. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.